This morning we are back in uh, the letter of James, written, one of the earliest things that was ever written by a Christian, written from an early Christian leader to his friends who'd probably been scattered throughout the Roman Empire and were having to learn how to live in a place that wasn't friendly to them, in a place that didn't share their values, in a place where they might be tempted to live as if Jesus didn't come for them, as if he hadn't done the things that he claimed to do for them. It's a book that's all about wisdom, and that's why we've been studying it. James is trying to help us translate the things that are true about Jesus into the things that we do with our lives. And one of the things that James talks about often, that's talked about in all the other parts of the wisdom literature too, because it's the stuff of our life, one of those things is money. And this morning in James chapter 5, we're getting back to that subject. It's one of the most common subjects that comes up in the wisdom, uh, in the parts of the Bible that, that introduce and unpack wisdom for us, partly because it's one of the areas where we need good instincts. There is no roadmap for precisely how to use your money in a way that's healthy and not harmful. The Bible's take on money is very complicated. I went back in our study on Proverbs way earlier in the year, Matt Givens unpacked what the Proverbs have to say about money. One of the things I remember from that is just that it really depends on the proverb that you're reading. It's complicated. Sometimes money is, is a, a, a gift or, a, or, or something that, you have, that shows you were wise. You know, when, you, when you've made good decisions, it leads to stability and security. Sometimes money is a poison that can affect your soul. In fact, the New Testament picks up that thing, talks about it as a root of all sorts of evil. The reality is, even though money itself is not ever the problem, even though there are, there are good ways to be wealthy, there is a connection. There is often a connection between having wealth and a poisonous, even ultimately destructive effect on your soul. That connection isn't automatic, but it's common. And that's the connection that James is pointing us to this morning. And we got to perk up here because all of us are wealthy. Uh, By and large, most everyone, even those considered poor in, in, in the West, compared to the standards of living in other parts of the world, compared to the standard of living even here in the U.S. and other times in history, we're well off. So when James talks about the, the rich, when he warns the rich, he's warning us. So the question we want to unpack this morning through what James has to say in James chapter 5 is how can we live where we do? How can we live in the way that we do without being consumed by the poison that wealth can be in our lives? How can we live here, now, without being consumed by the poison that wealth can be in our lives? James gives us two examples, two examples of where wealth becomes dangerous, two images, two abuses of wealth, and then two images of the destruction that wealth can bring. We're going to walk through each of those images, try to unpack them for ourselves. they, They basically get at how you use your wealth, that's the first image, and how you gain your wealth. That's the second image. When should we be concerned? 
How can we recognize that wealth is having a poisonous effect on us rather than a positive effect on us? First, we can, we can, we can recognize it when our wealth depends upon hoarding. And then second, we can recognize it when our self-indulgence, when the good things we enjoy in life depend upon the exploitation of other people. Those are the two steps we want to take this morning from James chapter 5. I want to start by reading the text together. Uh, If you would, please stand with me in honor of God's word while I read the first six verses of James chapter 5. This is the word of the Lord. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. When is wealth deadly? In the first few verses here, James tells us that wealth can be deadly when our wealth depends upon hoarding. That's the first three verses of chapter 5. Did you notice how they built to his charge at the end of verse 3 that you've laid up treasure in the last days? It's the image of just piling on or pulling in, always wanting more, more, more. And along the way, he points us to a couple different ways this could look. A couple different ways hoarding could appear in our experience. Verses 2 and 3, they're pretty straightforward. They're this vivid description of what happens to wealth and what happens to those who trust in it. He first points to the big spender. That's verse 2. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. The riches here is not literally a currency probably a reference to the the fine things someone could own. Even even specifically to food, some scholars think it's it's a, a reference for really fine, luxurious foods that you might stockpile for yourself to enjoy. So the the person who's using their money to have great experiences in life. Or the reference to garments, fancy clothes, using your money to 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 pile up more and more nice things. His warning to those who pile up more and more is that the things they've spent so much time and energy stockpiling well they're just going to rot to turn to nothing and the clothes that they were so proud to buy so proud to wear would be moth-eaten something that would disintegrate on touch basically that the things you love so much and put so much stock in don't last Then in verse 3, he turns to another way to hoard good things for yourself. If 
Verse 2 is more talking about the things you might buy with your money. Verse 3 is talking to those who are the big savers, to people who actually look more to their cash for security than to prove how awesome they are. This is the people who hold on to their gold and their silver, to these precious metals. And let's say you look to, these, to, to, this, to this cash for survival. Let's say you've stored up gold and silver. James is saying even these precious metals that we know don't actually rust, in the grand scheme of things, they may as well be common metals that rust away with little time at all. In the grand scheme, these, these things, this, this cash that you think makes you safe in the world is ultimately going to disintegrate. James then makes his main point. This is where we want to really drill down. So he's told the big spenders that the things they're buying aren't going to last. And he's told the big savers, the thing you're looking to as your life raft in life, it's just going to disintegrate. It's going down. And then he, then he really drills the point home. At the end of verse 3, did you notice this when we read it? At the end of verse 3, he stops talking about the disintegration or corrosion that will happen to the things you trust, the things that you love. And he starts talking about the corrosion or the destruction that will happen to you. Verse 3 says, their corrosion, the corrosion of the money that you look to to give you security, their corrosion will be evidence against you. And then he takes it one step further. Their corrosion will be your corrosion. It will eat your flesh. So, the person who looks to their stuff for identity or for security will end up getting the same thing that their stuff gets. Why? I think it's because the more you buy, the more effort you put into it, the more happy it makes you to buy something new, the more getting more gives you purpose in life, makes you excited to get up out of bed, makes you sad when it doesn't go well. The more getting more is central to your life, the more you've attached yourself to what you could own. What you buy is how you show you're successful. It's how you show you have good taste. It's how you define for others who you are. Take his example. Let's take clothes, for example. In our culture, typically, you're not buying new clothes because you need them to survive. Because you can't be warm without them. Because you can't cover your body without them everybody most people have clothes there's even places where you can go to get clothes when you don't have them if you can't afford to buy them clothes are available so when clothes are widely available and we always want to buy more of them what are we doing at that point it's gone beyond survival and it's gone into the the category of, of a statement that we're making about ourselves right all of us are doing this It's not about warmth. It's not about survival. 
It's about who I am or the image I want to project to the people who see me. So the more we spend, the more often we buy, I think what that's showing, the more we hoard, the more central that statement is to who we are. The more important it is to us to make that statement about who we are. In other words, we've attached ourselves, our own identity, to the clothes that we wear. And what happens to our stuff, what happens to our clothes, will happen to us. James is saying that in the big picture, what you're wearing is moth food that disintegrates to the touch. And if you choose to define yourself by what you're wearing, then you are moth food. You are no more stable than that which disintegrates to the touch. You get what your stuff gets when you hoard. Or maybe you're a great saver. You're, uh, you're, you're a frugal, frugal person. You're wise in your business decisions. Your investments grow and grow, and that's good, right? It's not a bad thing in and of itself. It can be a responsible thing, a wise thing. But if your digital gold and silver are your life raft, if watching the account balances grow is what gives you peace, when you're going down with them, that's why James says that you're corroding, not just your gold. If you trust yourself to your wealth, what happens to your wealth happens to you. And you know what happens to your wealth? goes away so I wonder if you're here this morning and you're considering Jesus maybe you've come because you want to know more about who Jesus is don't yet consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus then I think the question James is putting to you friends is what if anything about you will survive your death Who are you when death strips away everything that you love and live for? Everything that you're proud of? Everything that you've accomplished? Who are you then? He's speaking to you as believers too. Those of you who are followers of Jesus. Would your spending and saving habits suggest maybe that you're double-minded? James has been talking about double-mindedness a lot. Yeah, I'm with Jesus over here on one side, but over here on the other side, I'm just doing things just like everybody else does them. I'm, I'm, I'm divided in my identity. That's what James is worried about. Would your saving and your spending habits suggest that you are hedging your bets a little bit? That yes, you're with Jesus, but you're also trying to get yours? Are you claiming to identify, friends, with the one who emptied himself, who became poor so that you might be rich while filling your life full of stuff that you can't let go? Do you build generosity into your budget? Do you scheme for ways to give away more? Those are the signs of a faith that's alive when we're attached to the one who, though in the form of God, 
emptied himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Paul wrote to his friends in Corinth in his second letter to the Corinthians of Jesus who, though he was rich, for your sakes became poor. The message of the gospel is that Jesus had it all and he gave it all away so that he could die the death we were meant to die. God's judgment on those of us who act like we're responsible for the good things we enjoy who live as if God has not given us everything that we have, who live as if he doesn't deserve everything that we are. We deserve death for the way we've sinned against him. And the one who was rich became poor for our sakes so that we won't have to die. That's the message of the gospel. Any one of you who trusts in Jesus can have his riches as yours, but you can't trust in Jesus and go on defining yourself by your stuff. That can't happen. Here's your choice. If you want to continue hoarding, you're showing that you'd rather trust your stuff than trust Jesus. That you'd rather define yourself by your stuff than define yourself by Jesus. That you don't share Jesus' urgency to empty himself for the sake of those who don't know him, who don't have access to him, who don't have access to the peace that only he can bring. So friends, are you defining yourself by Jesus? Are you trusting ultimately in Jesus? And will you be driven by Jesus' drive to empty himself for the crown that was set before him? Last week we talked about the International Mission Board and about the, about the stakes of our global responsibility to get the gospel to places where people have no access to Jesus. That it's on us here where we do have access and do have resources to take the gospel there where there is no access and there aren't resources to get him there. You realize that there are many churches in Nashville whose membership has more people than there are Christians in the 73 million person country of Turkey? You realize people are dying today. While I preach, people are dying in the mountains of northwest China who live their whole lives never hearing that Jesus died to save people like them. Babies are being born right now on the Persian Gulf. Babies are being born right now who unless something drastic changes will live their whole lives and they will never even hear that Jesus can give them a peace for this life and the life to come. They'll never even hear about it. So our souls are in mortal danger if we go on hoarding our stuff unaffected by truths like that. Because what that says about us is that we are more defined by what we can own than by what Jesus has promised to give us. When is our wealth... A danger to us. That's the question we're trying to ask and answer. 
when are the opportunities we enjoy opportunities for a toxic, poisonous effect to take root in our souls? The first one is when our, hoarding, when our, when our wealth depends on hoarding. The second example that comes out in the next few verses, I'm framing it like this. We have to be really careful to recognize when our self-indulgence depends on exploitation. So if the focus of that first section, the first three verses, uh, was on how you use your wealth, whether or not you leverage it for the good of, of others or just keep on piling on, this next section focuses on how you get what you enjoy, how you've gained wealth or other opportunities to, to enjoy your life. It has to do with self-indulgence. It's bigger than wealth. It's just self-indulgence in general and what makes it possible. So James starts with an example. Uh, it's an example that's definitely more familiar to us from history than in our own experience. What I want to do is walk through his example, make sure it's clear, and then I think the real challenge for us in the next minutes that we have together is to connect what James has said about this example that's pretty far into our experience, how to connect that with things we do experience, with opportunities we do have to benefit from exploitation. So first we'll walk through the text, then we're going to pause and and think carefully and go deep together on, on how we can be sensitive to, to this issue in our own experience. So, so let's walk through the text first. Look at verse 4. Here's James' example. James tells those that he's warning that the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? He's, he's imagining a wealthy landowner who hires people to work his land for him would have been common back in that agricultural society. It's been common in American history at different times in different places. It's not, it's not unfamiliar from history. Someone is wealthy, hires people to work for them, but then holds back their wages. James builds to verse 6 where he t- says that you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. It seems like there he's talking about the effects of this kind of fraud, especially in an age where people depended on their labor just to feed themselves. To hold back their wages was, in some sense, to take away their lives. So James is warning those who have defrauded the people who work for them. And verse 5 tells us what they were doing with this, what the payoff of their fraud was for their own lives. It says, you've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. The fact that you hold back wages from somebody else is how you pad your life with the comforts that you're enjoying. It's how you're able to indulge yourself in the way that you are. That's what he's telling them. It's just one of many examples that he could have used. I don't think James is only talking about the people that he's writing to who were wealthy enough to have land and to defraud people who work for them. In fact, most people think that those he was writing to here in this letter probably didn't own the land and weren't actually defrauding. It's just an issue that was common in in his day. And he was trying to bring to the surface what this looks like for your wealth to become toxic to your soul. But the point itself is clear. Whether, Whether he was writing to people who were actually doing this or just talking about a generic example from his time, he's talking about those who enjoy what they enjoy by exploiting other people. 
he is not saying we should never indulge ourselves with the good things of life. In fact, the Bible is, is full of celebrations, of feasting, of entertainment. Music, for example, a gift of God, celebrated throughout the Bible. It, it, the, the Bible calls us to celebrate the beauty of the world, the kind of places you can go and see for yourself and worship God from having seen them all over the world. It costs money to travel, not a bad thing. It's not saying we shouldn't indulge ourselves on the good things of life. We're meant to glorify God by enjoying the good things that he's made, but there's a kind of self-indulgence that's deadly. It's only possible because you've robbed someone else of what's rightfully theirs, and the result of that kind of self-indulgence is crystal clear in verse 5. James tells these people that you have fattened yourselves Fatten your hearts in a day of slaughter. If the first verses warned that to attach yourself to your stuff, to identify yourself with what you own, means you get what your stuff gets, decay, disintegration, destruction, then here his warning is that if you indulge yourself freely, without restraint, only asking what feels good, only doing what you want to do without concern for the effect on other people. When your only guide, in other words, is your appetite, what tastes good, then you're actually bringing on your own destruction. The image of someone fattening their heart for a day of destruction, day of slaughter, it's, an Im- it's, a, it's another agricultural one, another one from farming. So if you, wanted to, if, you were, if you were fortunate enough to have a pig in your possession and you wanted some bacon then what you would do is feed that pig really, really well. Now imagine you're that pig. You think you've hit the jackpot. All of a sudden, you can eat as much as you want, whenever you want. It's unlimited, unrestrained. And the pig is only thinking about his appetite, only thinking about how great it feels to be able to eat whatever you want, whenever you want to. The pig thinks he's got it great, and that's what it looks like. But in the, in the bigger picture... The more he indulges in this thing that tastes good, that feels good. The more he gives himself to his appetites without restraint, the more quickly he brings on his own death. And James is saying that's exactly what we're doing when we enjoy things, when we indulge ourselves at the expense of others. Now, I mentioned earlier that James' example is more familiar to us from history than from our own experience. I think this passage is a real challenge to us to think about not just sort of joining James and pointing the finger at what other people have done to exploit others or are doing in other parts of the world, but to think about how and what areas we might be indulging ourselves at the expense of other people. I think we've got to work hard to recognize where we might be guilty. I want to point us to three examples. They're not exactly like James' examples. They're a little, in some cases, pretty different. But I think that underlying principle shows up where indulgence of your own desires depends on exploiting someone else. And the first one, I want to, the first one begins with a historical example that is a lot like James. 
The first example I want to talk through is, is the example of racial privilege. So, in our history, for, for many years, for more than a hundred years, slavery was an economic reality that made the country do what it was able to do. The economic realities of, in the United States depended upon this system of enslavement of one category of people for the benefit of another category of people. It's pretty much tailor-made to what James has said. Someone having workers that they're not paying. And thanks be to God, that system doesn't exist in the way that it did before. But slavery was followed by an era in which millions and millions of former slaves with no family ties to boost them into a new life of freedom, started from scratch, even worse than scratch, with laws that were stacked against them at every level. Laws that restricted certain jobs, certain education opportunities, certain, certain, uh, certain economic advantages that, that we can't even really remember now because it's, it's so far back into our past that kept people from being able to enjoy the advantages of a whole other category of person. Thanks be to God, for 50 plus years, these legal wrongs have been righted. But, though things are much better today, by God's grace, the realities of the hundreds of years before the 1960s are realities that we're still living with. They aren't just historical curiosities. We live in a world that is dramatically shaped by this history in ways that we can't always see. And there is nothing simple about the connections between race and economics in America. I am not trying to say that there's some sort of simple solution. I am certainly not trying to say that those of you who were born into families who enjoyed financial stability ought to feel guilty or ought to give away everything that you have. I am saying that we as Christians don't have the right to enjoy what we enjoy if we were born into situations of financial stability that are affected by Years and years and years of exploitation that we get to enjoy the, the, the stability that we enjoy without concern for others whose lack of financial stability has been shaped by years and years and years of exploitation. So, I don't know what the roadmap is. I'm not pretending to offer one. I'm saying as Christians, we don't get to not care about that. And we, and, and we don't get to enjoy what we enjoy as if we deserve what we have. Because even though by God's grace you may have made wonderful financial decisions, and even though your parents may have made wonderful financial decisions, and that's good and something you ought to press into and pursue, it's just more complicated than that. And so, part of faithfulness, I believe, to James' message is us paying attention and seeking to be part of solutions rather than pointing fingers. That's one example. 
that we should all just carry on in conversations with each other in our small groups and with, with our friends because it's complicated. Here's another one. Next thing I want to talk about is the issue of abortion. Now, the, the conversation that we need to have here is going to require a lot of sensitivity for a couple of reasons. And here's the first one and the one that's most important to me. Stats say that as many as, it's hard to know for sure, but it's possible that as many as 3 in 10 women in America experience at least one abortion in their lifetimes. And even if that stat is very inflated, it's contentious, some people think it's inflated, even if it is, that means that, that chances are several of you have had this experience. Some of you have had it. And I'm about to talk about abortion as a serious offense. But before I do, what I want to say, what I want to remind you of, is the promises of the gospel. Because Jesus Jesus came for serious offenders like me. For serious offenders like you. And what Jesus offers to serious offenders like us is a new identity shaped by who he is and what he has done for us, not by what we've done. And if you repent and believe in him, you'll be defined by what he's done in the eyes of God and in the eyes of our community. Another reason we need to be sensitive when we talk about this issue is that it's easy to blame women when you're talking about abortion and neglect the fact that you don't get pregnant on your own. And that it is much more easy for the men involved in every one of the cases to get clear of responsibilities for pregnancy and childbirth and child rearing that women have a much harder time getting out of. That's a reality. There's no question that unwanted pregnancy brings pain, can make things deeply challenging, in circumstances that are already challenging, especially for teens and for single moms that are in poverty, that's all that is true. But that said, we have to talk about abortion because a million babies are aborted in America each year. And there is no coherent argument for why a human inside of a womb doesn't deserve the protection of a human outside of a womb. Throughout human history, those with the power to do so have been defining other kinds of human life as less worthy of protection than their own. Abortion rights advocates insist that abortion is not about the fetus, it's about the women that women's rights are more important. The right to uh, sexual experience without reproductive consequences. The right to pursue a career without the responsibilities of parenthood. The right to control what happens to one's body. Rebecca Treister in The New Republic was refreshingly frank about this. This is what she wrote. I believe that my rights, my health, my consciousness, my obligations to others outweigh the rights of the unborn human inside me. And later she wrote, abortions are not about fetuses, they're about women. Now, without, without disputing 
the unique and the serious responsibilities that fall to women who were pregnant, here's what Trister is saying. She's justifying a kind of self-indulgence that's made possible by the exploitation of another life. Imagine if her language were reversed or adjusted to include slavery instead of abortion. Imagine a slaveholder saying, slavery isn't about the slaves. Slavery is about the plantation owners, about the quality of life that, that slavery makes possible for them. There's no question that the fetus is vulnerable, even powerless. There's no question that the fetus is voiceless, unable to make a case for its human dignity, that that child, unborn, is unable even to protest, even to hold up one of those iconic, beautiful signs that proclaim, I am a man. But James tells us that the cries of the powerless reach the ears of the Lord of hosts. And that we have to train our ears to hear them too. And to respond. I want to give you one last example before we finish. I want to talk about pornography. And here too we got to be really, really sensitive. Because friends, I know that many of you are stuck in a pattern of addiction that you hate. Even though you can't imagine being free of it. I know you already feel more shame than you think you can bear. I don't want to add to your shame this morning. But, but part of your battle is a mental battle. A a battle of perspective. So you need to hear the truth. Part of the path of freedom path to freedom and to holiness for you may be recognizing the system of exploitation that your porn use feeds into so that you learn to hate it. I don't think there's a more clear example of self-indulgence than viewing pornography. Because it's self-indulgent, because it seems private, it can easily feel like a victimless crime. But there are numerous studies out there that confirm clear links between the demand for porn and the rise of human trafficking around the world. Did you know that it's estimated that more humans are being trafficked as slaves now than at the height of the transatlantic trade? And the demand for slaves is driven by a demand for videos and for the prostitution that those videos inspire. It may be true that the videos you're watching don't include people forced to do what they're doing. That might be true. You can't be sure. But maybe that's true. But that said, you are participating in something much bigger than your bedroom. Much bigger than your internet connection. You're part of something global. 
into which innocent children are being swept up every day. Not to mention all of those women who are too desperate in life to resist or too weak to say no to the threat of violence. Your opportunity for self-indulgence depends on the exploitation of other people. People made in God's image. People whose cries ring in God's ears. Now thanks be to God, Jesus Christ came while we were still sinners, enemies even. He came for the porn addicted. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly like me. But he came to redefine us. He came to set us free. He came to make us holy like he is holy. So your self-indulgence that contributes to something far bigger than what happens in your room, it is a poison. For your soul. And it suggests. That you are living a double minded life. The sort of life that James has been warning us against. From the beginning of his letter. Friends thanks be to God. Jesus has come. If he hadn't. Who of us could sit under this warning. And not be crushed by it. But you've got to resist the temptation to let this warning blow over you and off of you as if it was meant for somebody else. Let's pray together now that God will help us to hear it, to run to Jesus through it, and to live lives of freedom and holiness in the light of it. Father, Thank you for Christ who has come for us, even us. And thank you for speaking to us so we know what the stakes are. Now we pray that you would help us, that you would help us to fight our defensive tendency, our knee-jerk reaction to assume texts like this one are for somebody else. I pray that you would cut through that, our apathy, our inattention, our defensiveness and bring conviction where it needs to be. Only meet that conviction with the sweet promises of the gospel and with the life, the new life, the life of freedom, holiness and joy that only Jesus can make possible. We pray this in his name. Amen.